It is good to be here uh, today. I appreciate the opportunity, the honor uh, that Pastor David gave me when he emailed me and asked me to deliver the sermon today. Um, I, I told him I'd get back with him. I didn't immediately say yes. Uh, I had to check some calendar things with travel and ends up, no matter what my travel plans would have been, they would have gotten canceled by Southwest. So um, <laughs> it, uh, it, is, it is good to be here. I immediately started thinking about what passage of scripture to preach on this morning because uh, many of you know our family. We've been members here since January of 2000. Um, Y'all have partnered with Sherry and I as we have uh, as we have raised our children, you have poured in, uh, into their lives uh, your biblical knowledge. You have sacrificed time uh, for youth uh, trips and GAs and act teams and children's choirs and chapel choir uh, trips and all of what goes on here at Dawson. And so I really enter this pulpit this morning humble humbled by the opportunity to preach to such faithful saints. I also recognize there are some people that may be new to Dawson that don't know me, don't know our family, and I trust that you carry a vibrant faith uh, into this place this morning. And some of you may be here and you're just exploring uh, Christianity. Uh, you're trying to determine if this is the course for you, if this is the path for you. And uh, we hope that if that's the case, that you would make today the day of your salvation. I'm going to read Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 14 says, Finally, my brethren, or my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, 
we have opened and read your word, our prayer is that you write it on our open hearts. May the explanation and proclamation of your word equip us, your people, and edify your church. Amen. Brad mentioned that Sherry and I have the privilege to be parents of four children. And there are different rites of passage that go uh, with raising children, the preschool years into school and then school uh, into elementary school into middle school. And then eventually you have to do the dreaded driver's training. And it always fell to me to be the one that did the primary teaching of the kids on how to drive. And uh, it's something that is a little nerve wracking. By the time you get to the third child, uh, you realize that that brake on the passenger side of the car is, does not work. It's invisible for a reason. It doesn't stop anything. It's just the way it is. Well, uh, one of the things that we did on Sunday afternoons to practice driving with all four of our children is we had let them drive to chapel choir. And one of the greatest places to practice to park is over here in front of these homes uh, to, the, uh, to the west of the church. And, you know, you, you, you do what a, a driving instructor does. Now, uh, kind of edge over toward the right of the lane and then swing wide and, and go right into a space. You know, three of my children picked it up pretty, pretty uh, quickly. Uh, and I have permission to share this story. You have to do that when your children are adults. Uh, but Victoria was having just the most difficult time in trying to park over here in that perpendicular parking. Angle parking at Walmart, fine, no problem, but just that swing out inevitably, we'd go into the parking place and she'd be straddling the line with the car. And I'd say, okay, well back up and you know, let's pull back in. Well, after about eight or nine weeks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of losing hope. And, um, but we, we drive up here, and she pulls into a parking space. I mean, it was perfect. And of course, I did what an encouraging dad would do. Victoria, that's great. You did that perfectly. You were exactly between the two lines. You couldn't have done that any better. And she looked over at me with a be bewildered look in her, on her face. And she said, that's not the one I was aiming for. <laughs> Everyone in the room has set or is setting or needs to reset the course for our lives. Um, Paul gives us some instruction here in Philippians chapter 3 to make sure that our lives land in the right place, that our lives get to the right outcome in what we desire as a child of God. The first thing he encourages the people to do is to hold to the new covenant. And it's interesting, there's a play on words in, in verse two when he says, beware of the dogs. It was very common for the Pharisees to refer to Gentiles as Gentile dogs. He would, he would tell them, you know, that, that's just a common put down that they would have of Gentiles, unworthy. And you know, we, we most of us probably have pets in our home. These aren't the dogs that hop up in your lap. He's talking about the ones that roam the streets, 
that are always nipping at you and causing trouble and trying to uh, get things uh, out of your hand. These are very pesky creatures and he's referring to them and he flips it and he refers to basically the Pharisees and those people who are trying to get Christians to add to the Christian faith by adopting the law, uh, the requirements of circumcision and the sacrifices that took place in the temple. And he said, beware of the dogs. He sees those people that try to weigh down the freedom we have in Christ with unnecessary rules and regulations. And so he is flipping the script on them and refers to them as dogs. And he especially sees them as dangerous to a vibrant faith. And then he turns his attention to encourage us, encourage the church at Philippi and by extension to us uh, that we remain on the right path. And this is uh, one of the things that we have to understand because circumcision and the rites of becoming a child of God and the, out, uh, the signs of being a child of God had changed from outward signs to something internal. In Romans 2, 28 through 29, we are taught that circumcision of the heart is the identifier of God's children, of his followers goes on and says that we worship by the spirit, not the adherence to religious rituals and traditions. And then we glory in what Christ has accomplished for us and for the world. See, a lot of times in my own life, and I'm maybe in yours as well, sometimes we enter into and continue on this path of faith in Christ, and we get so familiar with the story so familiar with uh, what we know about Jesus Christ and how he was born of a virgin, how he lived a perfect life, that he willingly went to the cross, that he died vicariously for our sins and he was placed in a tomb and on the third day he rose. We get so familiar of that, with that that we sometimes forget how significant it is. We glory in what Christ has accomplished for us and for the world. And then we put no confidence in the, in the flesh. Jesus instructed his disciples and basically said to them very directly, for apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. Anything significant that can happen to our lives spiritually is the work of God. Anything that we can do for the cause of the gospel is the work of God through us. There is absolutely nothing we can do if we rely just on our human effort. We have to rely and put confidence in Jesus Christ. And then he switches in verses four through seven. He says, strive for the righteousness of the new covenant. Strive for the righteousness. We can't rely on anything we've done apart from Christ. And Paul had a lot to boast about. As you read there, uh, he, he, he was born a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was He practiced flawless righteousness. He persecuted the church. He was zealous for what he was wanting to accomplish in his commitment to the Lord. And he says he, he has nothing 
to build his life on if he relies on that. And he switches in verse 8 and he says, knowing Jesus as Lord becomes the only accomplishment that he, and by extension us, find value in. Knowing Jesus as Lord surpasses anything else that we can experience, anything else that we can understand, knowing Jesus as our sovereign, as our Lord. So how do we prepare for this upward call? How do we get to a point at the the last supper or last Passover, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 36, that that where he was going, they could not follow him yet or after, until afterward. And then by the time he gets post-resurrection, he's commissioning his disciples. And so he goes through several things that we need to do to prepare for this upward call of God. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now understand, this is being told to the disciples. Judas has left the scene in that upper room. He has gone and put in motion his betrayal. And Jesus turns his attention to equipping his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then John 15, four says, abide in me and I in you. That description of this intimate, personal, vibrant, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Abide in me and I in you. And then 1510, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so we see that the law, where where it was the attempt to earn our way to salvation, becomes a salvation by grace that is expressed through wanting to keep the commandments of Jesus Christ. And then in 1512, he begins by saying, love one another as I have loved you. Is there any limit to the depth of that kind of love? If we love one another as Jesus has loved us, is there anything that we can say we're not willing to do for the benefit of our Christian sister, our Christian brother, for the church, for the gospel. Love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 9, he shifts and he says, desire the righteousness that comes through faith and depends upon faith. Brad mentioned I serve as the campus minister at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. I've been there since 99. I've been doing campus ministry in the state since 88. Uh, The years do fly by if you're young, and I consider anything under 58 young, uh, the years will fly fly by. And um, before you know it, uh, you'll have gray hair like me. And so, but I'd become really good friends with a PhD student at UAB who happened to be from the Middle East. He was Muslim. And we became good friends, and uh, we shared a lot of uh, conversations. Uh, We shared a lot of meals together. And I had made this promise to him, and I said, 
when you pass your oral exams for your PhD, I will treat you to any lunch at any restaurant in Birmingham. And after I said that, I immediately said, oh, I hope he doesn't pick Ruth's Chris. But, <laughs> and so he did, he, 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 he passed his orals and it was about 10.30 one morning. He says, I passed him, you owe me a lunch. And I said, well, pick one out. And I'm just expecting to hear some really uh, swanky kind of restaurant somewhere in Birmingham. And he says, oh, let's go to the PETA stop. Okay, I, I, I can afford pitas. Um, and so we went there and, and I, said, I said, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, sure. I said, what turns you off most about the church, about Christianity? And he shared with me his response and we uh, commiserated and, and conversed about that for, for several minutes. And I said, can I ask you another question? He said, yeah. He said, what attracts you? to the church? What attracts you to Christianity? Without hesitation, he said, this whole concept of grace, I just can't get my mind around it. We, we spent another five to seven minutes discussing that. Um, you know, he, he's still to this day is not a believer, but he does send me a Christmas card every Christmas, and he's started to quote John Wesley in some of his cards. And, and so I think he's on the path. This whole concept of grace. See, grace has to be accepted through faith. Because there is this kind of built-in determination to want to perform you know, we grow up not wanting to disappoint our parents. We grow up not wanting to disappoint our teachers. We get to college and we want to achieve uh, certain uh, levels of, of scholarship and prove that we can handle academic life. And we have this built-in desire to perform. And then when we graduate, we start a business or go to work in a corporation or a business and we want to make sure that we achieve the best. But with our salvation, everything that's been achieved has been achieved on the cross. Everything that's required has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. See, the righteousness that comes through faith is mean, meaning we're not trying to get our mind around grace we accept grace and depend on grace each day to live our lives. We rely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the cross, not because of our own works. And then in verse 10, he says, live in the power of the resurrection. You know, one of the great things about getting married is all of us grew up with familiar stories in our own family, but then you get to experience some of those familiar stories uh, of, your, of your wife's family. And one of the stories that I heard early on was about a bird dog they had named Scout. Now, you know, bird dog means quail, you know, they hunt quail or, or point quail. And it was one of those cold, cold nights up on Sand Mountain 
Much like what we had in Birmingham last week when I woke up Friday morning and it was eight degrees. It was, you know, I don't know what the wind chill factor was, but it warranted my heaviest coat. And uh, some of you may not be old enough to remember incandescent lights because everything swapped, swapped to LED lights. And, but incandescent lights threw off a little bit of heat. My dad did this, Sherry's dad did, did this. You rig up the doghouse to where there's a socket in the top. So when it gets really cold, you can put an incandescent light in there, a light bulb in there, and it throws off enough, off enough heat that the doghouse stays warm. Well, something had happened and either the light bulb had burned out or the, like, the, the extension cord had gotten, gotten unplugged. But anyway, Scout was frozen. And as described by everybody in the family, it was a frozen. <laughs> Paul's out. And of course the girls, they were young, preteen. They thought Scout was dead. And her dad brings, brings Scout into the house, lays him up on the counter. He's frozen stiff. And he says, girls, go get the hair dryers. And so he goes and they get the hair dryers and they start thawing Scout out. And he lived. He, he was not dead. He just appeared to be dead. It's kind of like that scene out of Princess Bride when... Uh, Billy Crystal makes that comment, he's not dead, he's just mostly dead. <laughs> well, a lot of times in our talk about the resurrection, we fail to understand that Christ was dead. One of the indicators and proofs of that is when the Pharisees started spreading rumors about the missing body of Jesus, they, not one of them said, uh, he really wasn't dead, he was just asleep. What did they say? The disciples came and stole his body. He was dead. And so we live in the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is realized in our salvation and in our obedience to Jesus' commission. In John 20, 21, Jesus, after his resurrection, said to his disciples, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We hear that, and my mind, and maybe your mind, immediately goes to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 uh, through 20, where it talks about the Great Commission. But also I want to touch on Luke 4.18 and following. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is how... Jesus was sent to give up every luxury of heaven to come and live as a human and do this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight 
to the blind. He set me at liberty, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's our call. This year and every year that follows, our call is to go as Jesus was sent. John 20, 22 and 23, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. See, Jesus has entrusted us. He has given us the privilege of joining him in his redemptive work. This isn't just for paid ministers or vocational ministers, people called to vocational ministry. This is a directive, an encouragement, an expectation for every believer to be able to achieve the upward call of God. And then on in verse 10, to share in the sufferings of Jesus. The apostles saw the Christians required participation in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as one that involves sacrifice. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, take communion, we, we consume those elements, the broken bread that signifies his broken body, the wine that signifies his spilled blood. And when we take it in, it identifies us with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. On two occasions, Paul described himself as being poured out as a drink offering, Philippians 2, 17, and also 2 Timothy 4, 6. 1 Peter 2 describes believers as living stones to offer spiritual sacrifices. Later in chapter 2, in verses 20 and 21, Peter states, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's how we experience the power of the resurrection. To live in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, and to join Jesus Christ in His redemptive work. And then we do it in humility. Verses 12 and 13, Paul admits that he's not perfect. He hasn't attained it yet. He's not there. He hasn't arrived. You know, every parent in here has done their best to raise their children. And we also know if we're in our most honest moments, there are times when we kind of blow it. And we say, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe I was too harsh. Or maybe I wasn't harsh enough. And I remember conversing with, talking to some of my kids and I said, you know, y'all don't have any perfect parents. But that's okay. I don't have any perfect children. <laughs> and there, there is this sense to where we are on the upward call, realizing that there is still a ways to go. And we press on for the prize of the upward call in God and Christ Jesus. The Gospel of Luke 
tells us more than once that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. He was determined. One must travel up, not figuratively, but literally to get to Jerusalem. He was determined to follow God's will for his life no matter the cost. And that's our upward call as well, to follow God no matter the cost. And Paul understood there's a reward, the goal of the prize. We live our lives in complete devotion to the upward call of Christ, of God and Christ Jesus. And there's going to come a day when we're on the doorstep of death and it's time to step over into eternity. And Jesus is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's worth aiming our lives toward. Whether that call for Christ to step into eternity comes this year, in five years, in 10 years, or 20 years or longer, that's worth aiming our life toward. And with Jesus as our navigator and example, we will never miss.